This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Episode of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com, the official podcast of minor league baseball. Hi, I am Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hi, Tyler. How are you? Doing all right. You? I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, Good. Want to throw out there uh, just the beginning. Um, you know, we're thinking of everybody on the West Coast. Yes. Right now. Um, Tyler, I know you've dealt with this with, with smog and, and fires around Denver in, in recent weeks. And obviously that touched baseball uh, this week with what players played through we saw Hazel Luzardo you know now a graduate yeah. prospect talking about playing through smoke and and how difficult that was for him just to breathe and this is a young guy himself and a healthy 22 year old as he described himself exactly um and we know everybody else is just going through that in their daily lives so we're, we're thinking of everybody in California and Oregon and and Washington State and um, anywhere else that this is coming down to here in New York, uh, you know, it's, it's been fall like it's, it's been really nice. I'm wearing jeans for like the first time in months. Cause I don't have to wear shorts anymore. Mr. Um, Autumn man, Sam Mr. Dykstra. That's, that is correct. Uh, <laughs> my powers are growing by the second, by the way, <laughs> my, my skin is turning flannel as we speak, but, uh, but like we even got smog here that was from the fires. Uh, you know, it, I woke up one morning, I was like, Oh, it's kind of a cloudy day. And, went to the news and found out that that's coming there too. So, um, you know, obviously we're, we're okay here. The air quality is fine here, but I know a lot of people out, out West are, are dealing with a lot right now. And we're thinking of you guys and hopefully, uh, you know, things get better quick and um, get back to some level of normal. But um, yeah, just another log on the fire as it were in 2020. Yeah. Um, but yeah, echo all those sentiments. I know, yeah, it's tough. You wake up and go outside and you can just tell by the light some days. Oh, this is going to be a smoky. This is going to be a bad day, you know. And uh, we actually, we got snow last week as bizarre as that was. But it was nice because it it shut everything down from the, the smoke perspective for at least a little while. I know the, the freeze kind of knocked out the, the uh, microscopic particles that were in the air. Um, from the ash from the fires and, and all that but um, yeah it's we so desperately would love to be able to send some of that weather out to the west coast and uh, we're thinking of you we got a lot of minor league friends and, uh, and minor league family in Washington and Oregon and California and, and British Columbia and uh, you know on the, the west coast of uh, the Baja California and the Pacific coast of Mexico um, you know being a, a minor league technically a, a minor league the, the Mexican baseball league and uh, actually the Mexican Pacific winter league getting ready to open its season uh, coming up pretty soon. So we're, we're certainly sending all of our best thoughts to, uh, to everybody affected by the fires and, and everything else going on in 2020. Uh, but we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show. Coming up uh, in just a little bit, we will talk with the uh, farm director, the director of player development for the right now 
top team in the American League, the Chicago White Sox. Chris Getz will join us coming up here in a little while, who is uh, just one of the best guys in baseball. I remember uh, when he took over that position for the White Sox a few years ago, I interviewed him uh, sitting on a golf cart together at uh, in uh, at Camelback Ranch in Glendale, Arizona, and we got done. And it was kind of one of his first interviews in that position. I remember we got done, and uh, I turned my recorder off, and he goes, how do you think I did? <laughs> he's awesome such a good guy so we'll talk with chris gets coming up here in a little while um we'll hear from benjamin hill later we've got uh, some discussion on uh the newly proposed names for the beloit baseball team uh formerly known as the snap well still known as the snappers uh but moving into a new ballpark next year and some interesting name choices out there they are not known as the beloit baseball team right now taking their cues from washington that's not what they're actually known as uh but they will be known it appears as something new uh going into 2020 and a lot coming up for you on the show today um but we will start with a discussion Two weeks remaining in the regular season, now less than two weeks remaining in the regular season in Major League Baseball, and the playoff field is uh, coming into focus somewhat and also just utter chaos uh, in the other spots. The the top half of each league kind of feels settled, and then there are those bottom spots now in this vastly expanded postseason format, which looks like maybe it is sticking around uh, after 2020 that uh, all of those spots still seem to be up for grabs. Right now, this is how the American League looks. And we will discuss uh, some of these teams and some of the prospects who seem like they could make the biggest impact heading toward the postseason. The American League's eight playoff teams as of today are these. Chicago White Sox are the number one seed in the American League at 32-26. and 26. They're a game ahead of the 31-17 and 17 Tampa Bay Rays. Oakland is two and a half back. Minnesota is three back. The New York Yankees, five back. They've caught fire since being a 500 team. They've now won six straight. Uh, Toronto at 26-21 and 21 is a half game back of the Yankees. Uh, Cleveland and Houston at 26-22. and 22 and 24 and 24 respectively uh, are also in playoff position. And uh, the Seattle Mariners, a team that has kind of surprised this year, along with two other teams right behind them who have been big surprises this year, the Detroit Tigers and the Baltimore Orioles, they are all still in playoff contention. They are not in a playoff spot right now, but the uh, Mariners are four games back at the second wild card. Tigers are four and a half back and the Orioles are five back, which uh, if you would have explained that to somebody in 2019, that that was going to be the race for a second wild card position in major league baseball in 2020, uh, nobody would have believed you. And also you'd have a lot more explaining to do about 2020. <laughs> um, National League looks like this. Uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, no surprise, the top record in the league at 34 and 15. San Diego Padres right on their heels, two and a half back. The Padres are 32 and 18. Then it's Atlanta and the Chicago Cubs at 29 and 20. The Miami Marlins, 24 and 22 right now sit as the five seed in the National League. Philadelphia Phillies are a game up in the first wild card spot. They're 24 and 23. Then it's the San Francisco Giants at 23 and 24 and the St. Louis Cardinals at 21 and 22. Cincinnati, Colorado, Milwaukee, and really the New York Mets all still very much within striking distance. Those teams respectively are a half game, a full game for both Colorado and Milwaukee and two and a half back uh, for the Mets. So it seems as though, you know, you look at those top four teams in each league, they're pretty well set to get in. Uh, Everybody else, it is going to be a battle. Uh, to make it in. Let's talk about the American League first. And we've talked so much uh, on the AL side with the White Sox for so long about the wave of prospects that they had coming. We've now seen some of those guys already graduate. Luis Robert now technically no longer a prospect, but Nick Madrigal's at the major league level uh, making an impact. Tampa Bay Rays, 
right behind them. They're only a game back. We haven't seen Wander Franco yet. I think uh, I know I expected that at some point this year we would see him uh, in the major leagues. The Oakland Athletics, a recent graduation of a bunch of prospects, uh, guys like Jesus Luzardo who have pushed that team right now into the three spot in the American League, uh, and some other interesting groups in here. Obviously, probably the most notable from a prospect perspective, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, who none of those guys are prospects anymore, but from Vlad and Bo Bichette and Kevin Biggio, um, some really interesting names there as well. Nate Pearson, obviously, uh, early this year was kind of the darling of that conversation for Toronto, which has had so many prospect darlings over the last few years. How is this stacking up? Let's talk about the AL first in terms of prospect impacts headed toward the postseason. Yeah, I mean, we, I guess we should start there at the top with the Chicago White Sox. And uh, one of the surprises for, from them, for me, is Dane Dunning. Uh, this year, and I think he's a big reason why they're they're there at number one. Um, so much of the, of the emphasis this year for for that White Sox system was on the bats. You know, Luis Robert, as you talked about, now a graduated prospect, maybe a rookie of the year candidate for sure. Maybe the favorite right now. It's between him and Kyle Lewis. Nick Madrigal, we all expected him uh, to at least compete for a second base job. He eventually won it, then got hurt. Now he's back doing Nick Madrigal things. Um, you know, I, I think the broadcast team out there called him Nicky two strikes the other day, they did. Uh, which, which very much upset me. That got a two strike hit. Yeah. He, he's uh, done that a lot yeah. this year. He's done that a lot in the, the minors as well. The fact that they stole that nickname from me and I don't mean stole it from <laughs> me and that I used it before. I'm just upset that I didn't think of it first uh, is very upsetting to me personally. But so we were focused so much on the bats. Michael Kopech was maybe the arm we thought could come up this year. Then he chose to opt out uh, of the season uh, for what seemed like personal reasons. And you know, we're going to leave that be for now. Uh, but Dane Dunning coming up, he, you look at his minor league page, there's nothing there for 2019. The guy had Tommy John surgery, had not been on a mound since 2018. And because of the situation we're all in right now, the first time he's in a mound in a game that starts or in a game that matters is a major league game. That was his major league debut. And he might be right now their number three pitcher in a three game series because everybody's going to be, be playing three game series in this first round. It doesn't matter if the White Sox are the number one seed. That's great. That means they get to play on the South side of Chicago, but they still have to play the number eight seed uh, in a three game series who could be at, as things stand right now would be the Indians, a team they know very well. Um, so, the discussion right now seems to be Dylan Cease or Dane Dunning. The fact that Dunning has done well enough coming off that Tommy John, you know, right now he's got 2.33 ERA in five starts, 27 innings. He struck out 28 batters in those 27 innings, got a whip of 0.93. Doing all the things right now to make sure that he gets a playoff start, which is fascinating. They also brought up Jonathan Stever at one point to get a start. I'm still keeping an eye on whether Garrett Crochet is going to come up this year. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're a little too late for that conversation. Uh, but the fact that the White Sox are still plugging these guys in and continuing to move along and still getting very good contributions from Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, uh, is a big reason for that. Eloy Jimenez feels like he's taken a major league jump this year as well. Uh, and then Luis Robert plugging him in center field and making that work is a big reason why right now the, the White Sox are 32 and 16. And I think beating the expectations we had this year, which were already sort of heightened, uh, would love to have known what would have happened in a 162 game season. Like Dane Dunning right now might not be pitching if he had started pitching in April uh, just because he would be on an innings limit. Now we don't really have that even coming off Tommy John surgery. So we could talk about him keep continuing to make postseason starts the deeper they get into October, if that were to happen, because those that innings cap really isn't there right now for them. Uh, 
Um, the one other, I'm going to look at the, the bottom of this right now. Tyler, you mentioned that the Mariners are four games out of the final wild card spot, but yeah. they're actually closer to the second AL West spot. Right now, they are two games back of the Astros. The Astros are 24 and 24. The Mariners are 22 and 26. Technically, right now, the Astros hold the tiebreaker, so it's more like three games than it is two games. But with two weeks left, that's, that's still obtainable, right? Like, that's still within their reach. Yeah. And looking at this Mariners team, I, I tweeted this out earlier this week. You look at what their roster is right now. Kyle Lewis is, is a mainstay in, in center field for them. Obviously, you're not taking him out of the lineup. The left field and right field spots for them have kind of been on a rotating basis. You know who's their top prospect? An outfielder who could fit in the corner outfield yep. spot. And who I feel like every day, he did it literally today as we're speaking. Jared Kelnick homered today. That, that sounds like a broken record. If we had Jared Kelnick updates every week on the show, it would probably be Jared Kelnick homered this week. It seems like we're getting a lot of really good updates on him from the alternate side of Tacoma. Now, if you're a Mariners fan, I probably – I hear two Mariners fans in my head right now, one of which is bring him up. Let's see if this season's going to work for – like, let's, let's go for it. Why not? And, and the other side of it is, well, why would you burn two, two weeks of service time for this guy um, just to maybe get a spot in the dance like this? And I get that, but the Mariners have done this before. They did this last year with Justin Dunn and Kyle Lewis and Justice Sheffield. They brought all these guys up just as, to get them a taste of the majors. And for all we know, that, that could be helping them right now. Justice Sheffield's been a, a fairly solid pitcher for them this year. Kyle Lewis – right in that rookie of the year conversation with uh, Luis Robert. Maybe that small taste of the majors helped them. It's only two weeks, but Jared Kelnick, maybe this taste of the majors getting used to seeing major league pitching uh, will help him going forward. You can send him to back to Tacoma or wherever their triple A team is probably going to be Tacoma. They have a good relationship there. Uh, you know, for 2020, let him get settled in there for a couple more weeks, bring him back up. But why not go for it? Why not just make that move? I know Especially there were some of the longest playoff drought in American professional sports. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, I know you mentioned before that, uh, you know, expanded playoffs could continue onwards beyond this season. And Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball has mentioned that specifically. And uh, there's that still needs to be worked out with the players union and the players union might not just say yes to that for all we know. So to say like, Oh, we'll get a chance next year when it's eight teams. We don't know that it will be. Like, take the opportunity when it's in front of you. Jerry Kelnick, I know he's not going to win four games on his own. But the guy is talented. Even if he's not hitting, he's fast. He's, he's a good fielder. He's got a strong arm. Uh, all the pieces are there for him to help out right now. And I, I would love to see that happen. Um, it, it's kind of dried up a little bit in terms of guys making their debuts. We had Tanner Houck this week in the, uh, the Boston Red Sox system. But the Red Sox right now are, aren't in a place of contention. So I, I'd be surprised if we see – maybe more than like three top 100 prospects make their debuts in the coming weeks. But I don't know if we're going to expand the playoffs and have teams going for it. The, the Mariners trying to catch the Astros, which would be hilarious for any number of reasons in 2020. Uh, take advantage of it. Bring up your best players. They're, they're not doing much at the alternate site right now other than getting at bats in uh, and, and make a go of it and see what happens. 
On the National League side, uh, the Dodgers obviously just reload every year with top prospects. The Padres, we've been talking about their prospect contingent for so long. Uh, the team that I think stands out the most, and, and we'll get your thoughts on uh, whoever stands out most to you from this group, but Miami Marlins, I think, have uh, probably been the most shocking team this year in baseball, and that's due in large parts to the fact that they missed you know a week of baseball uh, with the first COVID outbreak uh, among a major league franchise this season. But with what they are doing right now and where they are having promoted Jazz Chisholm, having given Jesus Sanchez a little bit of a look, and now Sixto Sanchez doing the things that he is doing, that team, talk about playing with house money. The Marlins right now, I mean, sitting in the in the five spot, uh, it's not just, oh, well, the Marlins are a fun story. They're kind of playing for a, a playoff spot. They're in contention for the top half in the National League. I mean, they could be hosting a first-round series. The, that team has stunned everybody. But what else from the, the prospect impact side of the National League stands out to you? No, I mean, I, I was going to say, I think it has to be the Marlins um, as of right now. Uh, just according to Fangraphs, and, and Fangraphs has some issues with rookies, who they count as rookies, who I think don't actually have rookie eligibility right now anyways. But as things stand on Fangraphs right now, the Marlins have used 18 different rookie pitchers this year. Uh, Sixto Sanchez leading that group at 32 innings. And as you mentioned, Tyler, I think he's become a huge story in baseball the last couple of weeks. Just recently, it was because him and Pedro Martinez had this really interesting conversation. He grew up loving Pedro. He still loves Pedro. He's got a tattoo of 45 for Pedro Martinez. Uh, people have long made the connection between the two because of their, their pitching styles, and that, that's no mistake. It's pretty clear that Sixto watched Pedro growing up and thought, how can I do what he does? Um, but the fact that he's able to throw right now with really, really good velocity. Um, he's got a 1.69 ERA in, in, in 32 innings. Uh, one thing I would like to see from him that he doesn't do a lot of right now is get a lot of strikeouts. He's never been a big strikeout pitcher, which interests me because his stuff is incredible. Um, he's averaging 8.2 Ks per nine right now. Uh, I think that might catch up to him at some point, especially given the way the league works right now. If you're pitching a little bit more to contact than your typical power pitcher, that might work against you at some point. But still, a 1.69 ERA, a 3.26 FIP, those are still really strong numbers for him. And they continue to rotate some of these guys in. I know Monte Harrison uh, hasn't been a great hitter, but they've started to use him as a defensive replacement at times. Um, Jazz Chisholm comes in and, and they plug him right in. Isan Diaz, it looked like they were bringing him back. Now he went on the 60 day IL. Uh, so Jazz Chisholm is going to continue to get at bats at, at second base and, and maybe even a little shortstop uh, with Miguel Rojas there already. Uh, Jesus Sanchez got a look at, at one point. They continue to just trust their prospects. Uh, it, some of that is born out of necessity, like you said, Tyler. Uh, you know, needing these guys just because they need warm bodies on the roster. But they had a deep system coming into this year. That's something we said. They've grown a lot. Some of that is through good drafting. Some of that is through good trades and, and um, you know, getting into a deeper system and a talent-rich system. But the fact that they're able to trust a Trevor Rogers, a Braxton Garrett, uh, former first-round picks of theirs, who just got a little bit of, of a taste of double A last year and they just threw into the fire and Braxton Garrett had a, a strong first start. Uh, you know, he, he went five innings, only gave up one run. You know, th that's because they trust these guys and they know what they they're capable of. And, and they've built a system, you know, for all their faults about not spending at the major league level and, 
and kicking the can down the road. Well, now they've met the can again. Uh, and a lot of these guys are coming up and um, I would love to see who sticks. A lot of these guys are not only pushing for a playoff spot, but they're also trying out for where are we going to be when this club takes the next level. Uh, and I hope they do. I hope this becomes a team that's now going to invest in its players and build around these parts, um, not just rely on Sixto Sanchez, Trevor Rogers, and Braxton Garrett to be your one, two, three in the rotation. Mix that up a little bit more. Um, and Sandy Alcantara has been good for them as well. Uh, but the Marlins have the building blocks here, and the fact that they are getting taking advantage of the 60-game season um, and trusting their prospects is huge. And for all we know, they could continue to do that. Uh, you know, J.J. Bleday hasn't gotten a, a look this year. We, we could see something like that. Edward Cabrera hasn't gotten a look this year. Maybe we see him at some point down the road. They have even more guys uh, who are at basically the same level uh, of experience of the guys they brought up. They, they have more in that well. They could continue to do this. And I hope it's something that continues into 2021 with, with uh, the Miami Marlins. It is uh, going to be a really interesting next couple of weeks. And uh, unless you were a fan of, you know, the Pirates, sorry, the D-backs, sorry, the, the, the Nationals, the reigning World Series champs who right now are 12 games under 500, uh, which, you know, they pretty much were at this time, 46 games yeah. uh, in the last year. And then uh, it was a, a much different world that we all inhabited. And they ended up rallying for a World Series title uh, or on the American, American League side, the Rangers, sorry. The Red Sox, not at all, sorry. And the Angels, um, it's, uh, you know, it's just crazy how many teams are still in the mix in 2020 and, and possibly beyond. We'll uh, obviously talk about those developments as uh, they come along over the coming months or whatever it is, uh, announcing what things will look like going into 2021. But enjoy these last couple of weeks of the regular season. Uh, a guy who is probably enjoying it as much or more than anybody is Chris Getz of the Chicago White Sox, who joins the show to uh, talk about the talented graduates from his system and what the feeling has been like on the South Side this year. Chris Getz joins us next. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. We're pleased to be joined this week on the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show, uh, by Chicago White Sox Director of Player Development, Chris Getz. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. How are you? Good, good. We're really happy to have you. So uh, it, we're getting you at a, a really good time as well. Last night, the White Sox just clinched a postseason spot for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, being a member of the organization at this point and especially being involved in player development this year, in which you know, we'll touch on some of these guys later, but Luis Robert coming up to help, Nick Madrigal, Dane Dunning, 
um, you know, what did it mean for the organization as a whole and your role as farm director to, to see the team clinch that playoff spot last night? Yeah, I mean, last last night was a, a special moment. Um, it was a special day for, for so many different reasons. I mean, it was an unusual year. Uh, you know, it, it certainly presented a lot of challenges, and I feel like we've made the most of it. Um, you know, it, it, I think just managing – kind of the ups and downs and putting this whole thing together this past year, uh, it, you know, it was something that no one was prepared for. Um, but then to, to get out there and finally get some baseball, have some of our younger players get an opportunity to be on our major league club, the, you know, the, the, the whole kind of rebuild process kind of coming to life at the major league level. And, but these guys transitioning in and really taking off right out of the gate. Yeah. Louis Robert, Nick Madrigal, Matt Foster, Cody Hoyer, you know, Tim Anderson continues to get better. Eloy Jimenez continues to get better, but just a, like a, a blend of, uh, you know, so many, so many different types of players coming together, but it was, you know, so many people are involved in this, uh, you know, and how these players were acquired and growing them. Um, so happy for Ricky Renteria, certainly Rick Hahn, um, just a, just a special moment. There's such rare moments. Uh, you know, like this, it, it rarely happens and it's so hard to do. So I, you know, I think I, I hope this kind of sinks in with everyone and, and they can actually sit back for a little bit. Certainly there's more, more to, to, to do. Um, we have higher aspirations, but certainly want to um, embrace this uh, as well. Yeah. And one of the things that led to this was some of the investments that the team made last off season. It seemed like things were kind of coming to a head. Robert was coming up. Jimenez was going into his second year. Madrigal knocking on the door, some other pieces that you, you mentioned there. Um, but going back to even last off season, how much were you communicating to the organization of, Hey, our young core is ready now. Like this is a time to add some other pieces and really make a go of it and kind of turn that page from young organizations to, Hey, we should really, uh, you know, be competing in this strong AL Central. No, I, I, you know, I've been very vocal, uh, you know, to, to the rest of the front office and, you know, different opportunities present itself throughout off seasons and certainly in season to make moves. But, um, you know, as you kind of piece the, these core players together, um, you know, I just felt like this was a, a winning ball club with, with the right additions. And we were, we were, uh, lucky to go out there and get Dallas Keuchel and Yasmani Grandal got experienced players um, that certainly are going to go out there and perform, but they've also been, a, you know, they've played at uh, stages, um, playoff stages, and, and been in pennant chases before that can help some of our younger players through that experience. So, um, but, you know, when you go through these rebuilds, and it's not always easy, uh, you know, plenty of conversations, whether it be with our, our owner or with, with Kenny or Rick, and just, you know, I have the, the luxury of going and spending a lot of time in the minor leagues and having those conversations and evaluate our players. And, and I see this piece and this piece and this piece, um, and you've got this vision, but this is a real vision that I felt that um, at some point was going to come together. And I can't I can't say that I predicted that it would be this year that we were going to go out and do this, but I knew that it was going to happen. I did have faith in that. Um, but for it to, to, you know, turn the corner this year and, and, and accomplish already what we've accomplished, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm happy and, and, uh, and I feel like we're, we've, we've got even better things ahead. Yeah. And, and let's, you know, pivot to back to the present here in, in terms of what player development looks like now. Um, you know, a lot has been made this year about the alternate site and I'll touch on that a little bit for you guys and in, in a bit of a unique situation for you guys. But, um, you know, just as, as a farm director, uh, to put it kind of bluntly, what does your job look like right now? Normally, you're probably traveling a lot in the Carolinas. You guys have a lot of affiliates down there, um, moving all around the country. Not able to do that this year for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, player evaluation changes, I'm sure. But what is how has your role changed just from 2019 to 2020 because of the you know pandemic circumstances? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a different type of busy, and like you said. Um, Oftentimes I'm, you know, traveling to our affiliates, uh, you know, wrapping things up uh, at our affiliates and transitioning into instructional league, the Arizona Fall League, and we've got September call-ups. Uh, where this year, you know, with the the spring training 2.0, but then transitioning to uh, you know alternate alternate site uh, in in which we we chose uh, Schaumburg, which is about uh, 45 minutes from Guaranteed Rate Field. Um, my day to day, quite honestly, you know, I, I do. A, oftentimes, I'm going to Schaumburg and then I'm going to Guaranteed Rate Field, um, and I've just found kind of a, a nice routine there. Uh, I think our staff's done a really nice job uh, designing the day uh, for our players at the alternate site, making the best of the situation, considering you can't play outside uh, competition, but creating our own. Um, but also, there's an element of development that I feel like is, is happened. And perhaps we were able to accomplish some more things that are more difficult during a season. Some, whether it be pitch adjustments, swing adjustments that uh, in this environment without, you know, necessarily facing instant feedback of trying to get hits or strikeouts or quality innings, uh, you can make progress uh, focusing on different ob- objective measures, um, but not getting distracted by immediate results. Um, that that's been kind of a silver lining at the alternate site, but the, the culture that was created, uh, in Schaumburg has been excellent. Um, that's a testament to our staff there. Certainly our players, we get our work in, uh, we make it an efficient day and, and we let our players get out of there and, and live their lives and, and get excited about showing up the next day. That's kind of our method there. And it's been a fluid roster. We've had a lot of guys that get opportunity from the alternate site. So I think that's certainly helped with the engagement of the player. Um, but yeah, it's like I said, a different, different type of year, different, uh, daily routine, but, um, you know, I've enjoyed it. I, 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 but that's really because I've enjoyed being around the staff here and how they've handled things in a very kind of difficult trying year. Uh, but I feel like we have made the best of the situation. Yeah. You, you touched on it there in terms of evaluating players. Um, you know, what are the routines you guys are sending them through when, when you talk about, not necessarily relying on results. Are you guys still having sim games? Are you mostly relying on you know analytics and, and data to show guys that their stuff is acting differently or they're impacting the ball in different ways? How are you evaluating players in Schaumburg on a day-to-day basis? It's certainly uh, all of those things. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, p- pitch data and hit data is, a, uh, is certainly a measurement that's been helpful uh, both on personal evaluation of the players, um, but it helping the players kind of make gains as well. Um, you know, we, we, we just have simulated games. It's, you know, rarely are the hitters facing a full defense. We have to 
we have to create a defense somehow, some way. Um, but our hitters are getting a lot of at-bats on a regular basis um, where, you know, we were counting up the at-bats that some of our players were getting the other day, and they're going to walk out of here with 200-plus at-bats against quality pitching. This is upper-level um, guys that with major league experience, and to have some of our younger players get that on a daily basis I think is uh, I think will benefit them. And then on the pitching side, um, you know, you know, we've got track, man, we've, we've got, you know, uh, constant communication and, and goals on a daily basis. And, um, certainly the game will let you know kind of what's working and what isn't they're facing hitters that are facing them all the time. So that presents a, a level of competition where I think that has helped. Um, and then, you know, we've got older guys, we've got younger guys they are kind of blending together, um, and helping some of those younger guys grow with the exposure that they've had to both, um, you know, upper level guys and just guys their their age. So um, trying to, to grab as many wins as we can here. Um, there are just different ways to evaluate this year. Certainly, uh, just being around and, and witnessing some some things and adjustments from an evaluation standpoint. But you know, relying on uh, on technology and, and the data that 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 comes out of some of the the things that we're using to to help us as well. So. Um, you know, things that we've used in the past, but maybe relying on more this year based on the circumstances. Gotcha. Yeah, and you mentioned Schaumburg before. Um, take us through the process to, to land on Schaumburg as the alternate site. You know, that's a that's a team that's not affiliated with you guys, not affiliated with any MLB club specifically. You guys, as I said before, have affiliates in Charlotte, Birmingham, Winston-Salem, Kannapolis, Great Falls. None of those are in the Chicagoland area, none of which were, were good for you guys there. So, you know, were there were you guys looking at a bunch of different sites? Were there even talks about maybe like Kane County or something like that? Um, you know, how did you guys land on Schaumburg? Yeah, we toured various sites, uh, whether it be colleges, um, affiliated um, uh, facilities, and then um, you know we landed on Schaumburg. And I, I will say, just their management team, their field, um, they've been great to work with. Um, the proximity has worked out well, the area in which our players are staying, um, you know, once again, not too far from, from guaranteed rate field, uh, easier for, for, you know, front office staff, or even we've had some major league players come down to Schaumburg to get extra at-bats, and we've got some rehab guys down there. And it's just, it's very close, um, and everyone feels very connected. But, um, you know, going through different colleges, there were some challenges because uh, there, there are some quality universities with, with good uh, baseball programs, but the, the, uh, the interference with, with students on campus and just some of the medical protocols kind of shied us away from, some, from going the school route, um, and Schaumburg was very flexible uh, with working with us. We worked out a deal, and I'm really happy with it. I mean, the feedback from both players and staff uh, has been positive, um, so, you know, unusual process, selecting one an alternate site. But I once again, I feel like it's worked out for us. Yeah, very cool. And, uh, you know, just to touch on some individual players here, I feel like the, the big story of the year for you guys, it, he always was going to be, from a prospect standpoint, is Robert. Um, you know, we, we named him as our Offensive Player of the Year last year. We just tore through three levels and then earned that major league contract has been a solid performer this year. I feel like especially defensively, um, but in terms of his readiness and the way he's contributed this year, I, I know the average isn't quite 
where it was in the minors and the strikeout rate is a little higher. But is what you're seeing in the majors what you guys were expecting, uh, given what you saw of him in 2018 and, and other spurts uh, throughout his pro career? Well, you know, I think the initial right out of the gate, it was quite honestly better than expected. Um, you know, yeah, you can you can certainly point to, to the strikeouts and the batting average, but there's also been stretches of just excellence. Um, you know, we, we witnessed it last year, a phenomenal year in the minor leagues. Uh, and prior to that, it wasn't uh, that he uh, was necessarily overmatched or struggling. He had that thumb injury that just sapped a lot of the, the strength and power out of his game and uh, you know, anyone that's played or you talk to any player, you, you, you affect something with your hands, um, you know, gripping that bat. I mean, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna, um, you know, affect your offense and your confidence and, and certainly what you're able to do with, uh, with the bat and the baseball. Um, but, you know, once we got him acclimated to, you, you know, to the, to the States, to, to the organization, um, and then get him healthy, uh, he, he just took off last year. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, you pointed to the three levels he played at. He just – he really torched through the minor leagues last year. Um, you saw some things that perhaps were going to be exposed at the major league level and some things need to be tightened up. But, you know, with a, with a talent like that, you saw the ability to, to make quick adjustments. He's got a really good relationship with our, our hitting coach, uh, Frank Manichito, and, and, and dialing in an approach to, to maximize his potential, you know, his, his lower half. Um, you know, creating balance in his swing. It's such a powerful swing, but you'll see some swings uh, at times where he falls down. Um, and that's because he, you know, he, he's such a, a, he creates so much power within that swing, but uh, just to, 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 to get balanced, to, to make quality decisions and putting them in, in, in a position to, to square up the baseball consistently has been the focus. Um, you know, pitchers are attacking him uh, like he's a veteran. Um, you know, early on in the season, just the off speed was, um, it was through the roof, but he was, he was making them pay with it. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, this is the major leagues. They're paying attention, you know, the opposing pitchers and teams. Uh, um, but he, he's adjusted well. He has. And the defense has just been, uh, you know, even, even better than we expected. Uh, there's been plenty of plays that perhaps, you know, I don't know if you've seen some of the clips where he's making catches in front of Eloy Jimenez. Yeah. Um, you know, he's covering both gaps. He's fearless out there. He can come in, he goes back. Um, you know, he's just a tremendous athlete that loves to play. All right, we'll, we'll move into the mound. One of the pleasant surprises of the season, at least from where I sit, has been Dane Dunning, somebody who missed all of last year with Tommy John surgery after he underwent it in, I think, March. Um, normally this year we would be following his rehab process, I'm sure, uh, that had to kind of happen behind closed, closed doors. And through five starts, he's been really good, 2 three, three ERA, striking out more than a batter an inning. What was his progression like to get to a point where the first time he pitches in a game that matters this year, it's his major league debut? And not only that, he might be a number three starter in the playoffs. You know, they, the, the, uh, the blueprint for Dane, we talk about an unusual one to, to, to make – you know, your first game back in the from Tommy John surgery in the major leagues. Uh, you don't see that too often, um, but, you know, certainly a testament to, to Dane. He's, he's got uh, tremendous belief in his ability. Um, you know, when we got him, that was, that was something that, uh, that stood out. You had a conversation with him, the understanding of, 
you know, himself really um, stood out amongst others. Um, but he's continued to get better, uh, you know, plain and simple. Obviously had the setback with the injury and coming back from the injury. You know, he, the rehab process was, was strong. Uh, that challenges players. And, and, and you know, with having such a, uh, a, a plus makeup, um, you know, he was able to power through that. And then, you know, obviously getting, getting his chance at the major leagues here in and attacking uh, with, with, with the understanding of how his stuff plays. You know, he, he's got four pitches. He uses both two and four seam, and he's been filling up the zone in the right zone with those pitches. Um, continuing to, to, to get better with his changeup and his curveball has gotten better and, he, and he's always had the slider, but uh, just piecing everything together, um, going out there with a, with a fearless mindset. Um, and, you know, he's, he's been impressive. And once again, probably gone beyond expectation, really. I mean, we've had high hopes, um, but you don't know how guys are going to initially uh, transition as major league players. I don't care who, who they are, um, but he's, He's stepped up for us and in a pennant race, and it's just been it's been really fun to see, and I'm happy for Dan. All right, well, pivoting to some of the guys who were at the alternate site in Schaumburg, uh, one of the stories of summer camp, spring training 2.0, whatever you want to call about it, uh, was Andrew Vaughn and getting some time at third base for him. Um, you, know, you guys drafted him as a first baseman. He played first base at Cal, uh, really good slugger, a high pick, obviously. Um, but how much is it the defense – is the point of emphasis right now for him because the bat has played everywhere, uh, even in his brief pro stint. And how much is like the major league situation right now? You guys signed Edwin Encarnacion, Jose Bray, who's having a borderline MVP season. How much does that kind of push him down the the depth chart and force that move potentially across the diamond? Well, you know, the move to third base um, for one, we'd like all our players to play as many positions as possible because it just, adds value to the, to the organization, to the team. And, and, and with that versatility, um, we, we felt that him getting some third base uh, reps was only going to help him at first base. Cause he's got a, he's got a plus arm. He's got good hands. His feet move well. Um, so we wanted to, to, to get him over there to make him a defensive athlete. Um, and we continue to do that. We've even tinkered a little bit with the outfield um, because, you know, we love the bat, uh, the bat, certainly plays i mean it's an advanced bat. He, he he's pulled a pole with his approach he's got power he he works counts um you know it's 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 pretty special offensively um and yeah i mean you, you look around the team and you know we, we feel comfortable in, in certain positions but uh we still view him as a first baseman we view him as an offensive threat there that that certainly can get some time at various positions. And we might have to do that, whether it be in the immediate future or, or still long-term, but it was about bat development and continuing to grow that. And we've been really happy with what we we've seen so far. And I mean, it, Andrew's awesome. If it, I don't know if you've ever been able to spend any time with him or, or listen to, um, you know, him talk. It's, it's, it's talking to a, a, an older veteran player. He, he understands uh, his swing approach, what makes him successful so I think he's another guy that has a chance to transition very well into the major leagues when that opportunity comes. All right. Well, speaking of, of first round picks, uh, Garrett Crochet, you guys took at a Tennessee this year. Uh, a lot of people thought, you know, in a normal year, he could be one of the pitchers to move the quickest. And part of that was because he had to take some time off in the spring uh, due to shoulder soreness at, at Tennessee. 
Uh, it sounds like he was getting right back on track when college baseball was unfortunately canceled. Um, where is he in his progression, and what have you guys been focusing in on him as he begins his uh, pro career, even under these unique cir- circumstances? You know, we we may have uh, we feel like we may have locked out with with the shortened season when it comes to Garrett Crochet because if uh, you know if he would have gotten more innings and more exposure and and more momentum, I'm not sure he gets to 11. Uh, to be to be quite honest with you, I mean it's it's a special arm. I mean, but you you look at you know you're talking six foot six, you're talking left handed, athletic. Um, he's coming at you. He throws hard. I mean, it's upper nineties. He'll, he'll he'll certainly go triple digits at times. Uh, you see a plus slider. But what's been impressive is he's got a feel for a changeup. Um, you know, you know we've played with some pitch grips with with all his pitches just to see if we um, you know in 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 the normal kind of uh, development process, just to see if we can play with some things and maximize some things, and he's taken to it. I mean, he's he's another guy that quick adjustments. Um, he's got a nice temperament on the mound, just a good way about him. Um, but he he's he's the guy that gets on the mound and starts throwing, and you want to you're not walking out of the room if it's on TV. You're not you know you're not going to the bathroom. Uh, you know, when he, when he reaches the mountain, cause you just don't see stuff like this. You just don't. Um, so needless to say, we're, we're, we are, uh, feel fortunate to have him. I think he's got a chance to be an impact arm. Um, and who knows when he's going to be able to, to, to help our club. Um, like you said, in a, in a normal year, perhaps he's, he's up there, uh, helping us and you know, the year's not over yet. So we'll, we'll see on that front. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, because things at Schaumburg are, are basically happening behind closed doors, I'll give you an opportunity here. Who's somebody that White Sox fans should get excited about because they've taken a leap this year at the alternate site? Um, maybe we would have seen it at a Winston-Salem, Birmingham, or Charlotte, but we don't get a chance to without a minor league season. So who's really surprised you, and, and who are you excited to see take that leap uh, when hopefully games start again in 2021? A guy that's probably taken the most or the biggest stride, um, uh, it was probably Blake Rutherford. And, you know, he, he's one of those players that perhaps benefited the most uh, with not having necessary to play a normal minor league season. I say that we were able to make some swing adjustments uh, and dial in an approach that fits his style of play. Um, I, and I think we were able to accomplish something here that now he will be able to take into, into the off season, into next year. And I could see him taking off. Uh, you know, we, we've always liked the swing, uh, the ability to put together an at bat he's flash power, but I think we might've tapped into a little bit more. Um, he's starting to gain that confidence, uh, you know, in the box and just as a, an overall player, I think he's just starting to believe in himself so, you know, he's the guy that's really jumped out of, you know, as we, we near closing our alternate site here soon, you know, and having conversations with him, I'm starting to, to get a feeling that we might be turning the corner here and, and he may be taken off. Um, so I'd say he, he, he's probably at the top of the list. Now there's other guys that uh, perhaps were, you know, you, when you talk about Andrew Vaughn, um, you know, I, he, he he just he's perform, performed the whole time. But another guy that is worth mentioning is Jake Berger, um, a first rounder from a couple of years ago. You know, ruptured an Achilles and then re-ruptured, 
and it's been a really tough road for him. Um, uh, dark times. Uh, he's been he's been open about that. It's we we've had some really emotional conversations, but you know physically he is in such a good place, and then mentally, uh, I know that he's got a he, he is he is just operating with a different mindset and excitement. And, you know, he looks good at third base. He's out there. I mean, he's driving the baseball and he's having fun doing it. And, uh, you know, I, I think you ask people in the organization, we weren't sure where this was going to go after, uh, you know, two Achilles injuries. And now to uh, to get him back out there with a smile on his face and going out, you know, and showing what he's capable of doing. I think, uh, I mean, we're, 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 we're feeling much better about Jake and, and, and I'm just happy for the kid more than anything. Yeah, I got to talk to Jake a couple of weeks ago about, you know, his route and going through, uh, you know, a collegiate league in Missouri and, and the decisions that went along with that and him just getting back on the field. That was I got to talk to him before that. How do you feel like that experience got him to a place where you guys felt comfortable adding him to the alternate site roster and gotten a closer look at him? You know, how did that experience affect his 2020? Well, you know, he, he very easily could have been uh, immediately, you know, brought in for our alternate site. But he, he also presented the idea of playing in this collegiate league. And once we looked into it and, and, and really talked it through, we felt like it made more sense for him to go to get out there and play some games. Um, you know, I think he's benefited being, you know, around his family and home. He's just been, you know, in a rehab process for so long. Uh, so, we felt like this league would not only provide games, but he'd be able to sleep at home at night. Uh, so he was able to get out there and, and play third base and get at bats. And once that league closed out, bring him in here. And and so that was the thought process there. Uh, feel like it's worked out. We're we're also going to transition him to instructional league to to get some more at bats and reps and play some outside competition. So I, I, for for Jake to 2020 from a baseball perspective, I feel like has has been a pretty pretty good one. All right, well, I'm glad you brought up Instructional League, and we'll leave it on this one uh, in terms of what's next for for players in the minor league system for the Chicago White Sox. Um, you know, there's been news going around that Instructional League is going to be a little bit expanded this year. Uh, what it, As things stand right now, what is the White Sox plan for Instructs? Is it going to be in Arizona? You know, how many players are you going to be able to use? What is that going to look like uh, for this year? You know, we're we're looking at 40 to 45 players in a five-week stretch playing three to four games a week, uh, you know, balancing outside competition with inner squads. You can get a, uh, you can get sometimes more reps uh, playing in-house, uh, but I, I want our players to see another jersey as well. But uh, we plan on getting out there pretty soon, a, uh, you know, uh, October, or I'm sorry, September 28th, we'll, we'll do intake testing and get on the field later that week and, and go into that, uh, go through October, um, and, you know, get some baseball for some of these young players. I, I, it's, there, there are a lot of young players with, with sprinkled in some, with some older guys, uh, you know, the focus on getting starting pitchers out there, uh, just to get some innings and some work and, you know, some premium position players as well. Uh, that, that, that's part of our framework. Um, we've gotten approval to go out there and do it and, you know, we'll be out there in no time and, and, you know, hopefully we can look back at some of the work we we've been able to accomplish this year, whether it be alternate site or, or in Arizona and feel pretty good about it. Not, it certainly won't replace, uh, you know, a full minor league 
season or, or full minor league work that we're accustomed to, but uh, we feel like, you know, it's almost your, you're mitigating how far back these players perhaps will go and, and, and have a chance at moving the needle forward. Yeah. And, and, and just touching on that as well, in terms of protocols for this, um, you know, uh, working out of Arizona, I'm sure it's a little bit easier to keep guys in house. Um, but how are the protocols going to affect this? Are they going to be similar to what's happening all the at the alternate site? What are the plans from that? Yeah, very similar to the alternate site with regular testing and, and, uh, you know, within the, whether it be inside the clubhouse or the field and the, the, the using masks and, and it, it, uh, all those things will be in place. We'll continue that. We felt like we've handled that pretty well here. Um, but, you know, much like here, a lot of responsibility on the players. Um, you really can only control so much, uh, you know, staying at the hotel, um, you know, minimizing uh, groups being together. Um and, you know, trying to get ahead of any issues that perhaps may develop. So, um, you know, it, it, you know, we, we feel like our medical team and our coaches have a pretty good understanding, and now it's educating the players and sticking to, to those protocols. Um, you know, there, there's no perfect way to do this. It's just constant communication and education. Um, and, yeah, just staying on top of it. Um, and, and, and hopefully that will allow us to go out there and play some baseball. Very cool. All right, well, Chris, congrats again uh, to you and the, the White Sox organization on that playoff berth last night. And uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this week's podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. Have a good one. Much to discuss this week with our good buddy Benjamin Hill as we uh, pass the midway point of September. Hey, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Sam. Wow, we have passed the midway point of September. And, you know, so recently I've been talking about wearing, you know, flip-flops and tank tops. And now all of a sudden we got a little fall chill in the air. And people Five say, days until the official start of fall. Yeah, it's almost like actually fall. And, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, you know, with, you know, the climate changing or just being inside all the time that, you know, the seasons have lost their meaning. But I'll tell, I'm here to tell you this. Seasons still have their meaning. And I'm uh, very much aware of the transition from summer to fall right now. Yeah, it uh, even out here it's got the well. I mean, we had snow last week, but it definitely has the. Uh, it'll be an eighty degree day, but you walk around and just the air feels a little different, and not because we're being choked with wildfire ash, which we are. But uh, you know, it's just like there's a little bit cooler breeze in the air, and the the leaves are starting to turn around here. And yeah, ordinarily we'd be getting ready to talk about well, you know. Uh, Innovators uh, Summit is coming up, and uh, and the winter meetings will be shortly behind, and all of that. There will be an Innovator Summit. It'll be virtual this year, but um, obviously a very different season, a very different year, and uh, some topics to discuss as we get into our conversation with Ben this week. Uh, one that has been probably the most hotly discussed topic on uh, on minor league baseball social media and in minor league baseball circles this week, the Class A Beloit Snappers, who will be moving into a brand new riverfront downtown ballpark uh, in Beloit, Wisconsin next year, will also have a new name. And uh, it's very much a uh, modern, high brandiose kind of uh, collection of names. But these are the contenders from more than 1,000 suggestions, trimmed down to five finalists, uh, snappers not being among them. They are, quote, the Cheese Balls, the Moo, the Polka Pike, Sky Carp, and Supper Clubbers. 
Um, it's kind of a, a standard list of nicknames uh, as far as the, the wackiness of them in this current era of minor league baseball. But there are actually a lot of different dimensions to this whole Beloit story and the ballpark and the ownership and the situation and merchandise, season ticket holders, all that. It isn't just, ah, we're looking for a little shot in the arm and here are some wacky team names. Kind of give us a, a little bit more of what's going on with Beloit. Yeah, well, the Beloit Snappers uh, have been a team um, blanking on the exact number of years, but since the 80s, uh, they've been around for coming up on four decades. And uh, they play at Pullman Field, or that's where they had played for many, many years. And uh, that is quite simply a, you know, completely outmoded stadium. And uh, I know there's been, they've received, you know, waivers and exemptions through the years to keep playing there when it wasn't up to, you know, facility standards. And even though there's so much to be determined, obviously, with what happens to uh, major to minor league baseball in 2021 and the relationship with uh, Major League Baseball and all that can of worms. But one thing's for sure is that Beloit in its current stadium uh, would not be existing heading into 2021, uh, given the facility it played at. So, uh, but Quint Studer, who is best known in minor league baseball circles for owning the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, he is from the Beloit area, I think Janesville specifically. And, uh, you know, so he now owns the Beloit Snappers. And not only that, has been a prime, um, you know, mover and shaker, for lack of a better term, in uh, getting a new ballpark deal put together. And a new ballpark is currently being built in Beloit for the Snappers that has quite simply, you know, is saving the team. As it, the fact that they we're even talking about minor league baseball in Beloit heading into 2021 is because there's this uh, reinvigoration of the club through new ownership, new investment, and a new ballpark. So the story of Beloit, big picture, is, uh, I think, very positive in what could be very dire times. But, of course, with a new stadium becomes a rebranding. And if you're following minor league baseball and you, you, know, you listen to this podcast and you know that minor league team names are goofier and keep getting goofier. And there's a lot of people who are pretty angry, uh, at least locally, with the five choices in Beloit that, that Tyler mentioned and that have a real affinity for the snapper's name. And uh, I definitely get that, but, you know, they're taking big risks in uh, getting this ballpark together. And I think uh, they want to have a team name that is going to get a lot of publicity and a lot of merchandise sales and uh, something that can perhaps better justify the investment that they're putting into the operation as a whole. One of the things that was really interesting, Ben, Quinn Studer, who you mentioned, he's actually been very forthcoming with uh, the shortcomings, to say the least, of uh, Beloit's past uh, iteration, I guess we could say, moving into the ballpark next year and all that type of stuff. But he said uh, publicly on Twitter, he unveiled the merchandise sales for the the Beloit Snappers. He said in 2019, the merchandise sales topped out at $37,000 for that franchise with less than $4,000 from outside the area. It's not very often that we see minor, ship, minor league uh, ownership or management be that open about financials in a circumstance like that. But I think it really showcases just how much a change needed to be injected there. Yeah. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that Quint is being so forthcoming. I mean, I've, I've gotten to know him a little bit in Pensacola and I think he's a, you know, he's a straight shooter again, for lack of a better term. Um, but I think it kind of really does need to make the case of just how much uh, was needed to keep this afloat. You know, there was a local news story that came out today uh, regarding uh, you know local to Beloit. Uh, regarding the controversy over the team name, but that story mentioned that Beloit in 2019 had 14 full season ticket holders. I mean, just 14. Um, so, I mean, this was clearly a franchise largely due to its ballpark uh, that, you know, could just barely survive. And Beloit is a small market uh, there in Southern Wisconsin. Um, actually, South Beloit is in Illinois. Uh, so I know some of the team name suggestions uh, 
you know, from fans had to do with being a, a state liner and that kind of thing. Uh, but if you go to the Beloit Snappers website, you can read an interview with Quinn Studer, uh, where he kind of goes into the sort of information that Tyler was just alluding to, uh, you know, where he talks about saying the team historically has averaged about 50000 a year in sales, and um, that, that they estimate that a new team name in Beloit will generate approximately 300000 in year one and 200000 annually after that. He compares it to Pensacola, uh, which was a bigger market, and said they did 750000 in year one and about 450000 after that. And he goes on to say that, you know, these merch sales are crucial to pay for stadium updates and improvements going forward. And, uh, you know, we know how important stadium updates and improvements are for minor league teams in order to, you know, meet the standards, um, you know, that are going to be imposed upon or agreed upon with Major League Baseball to keep those affiliations going. So as goofy as these team names are, and as I understand people arguing with them, um, I think also it's important to know um, just how much, uh, you know, cold, hard cash, uh, pure business decision, it, you know, lurks behind this lighthearted, goofy stuff, because it's a huge part of an operation. And a huge part of translating this name change into into that money uh, is engagement, obviously. And it, given, you know, when this was first announced and, and their rollout last week and a little bit of time has passed since, whether it's your discussions with people, whether it's what you've seen on social media, what do you feel like is driving the most engagement right now amongst these five names? Oh, I think they all are kind of collectively. Um, I mean, I think cheese balls kind of just because it's so over the top. I mean, a team literally called the cheese balls and that was the first one announced. Um, you know, a lot of people have pointed out with Moo that there is a team, the Fremont Moo. I think they're an indie team, uh, but there already exists a team called the Moo. So with copyright issues, I, I don't necessarily see that one happening. Um, but I think cheese balls is the one that got the most. But I think it, it, on the whole, it was just collectively that it was five team names, none of which were their snappers and none of which really had any strong element to what could be considered a quote unquote traditional name. And, you know, something we've talked about many times, you know, on this podcast and on stories on the website is so much of this is about just generate, generating publicity. Um, you know, uh, any publicity for the most part is good publicity. And how often are people talking about a local minor league baseball team in the off season in a small market in Southern Wisconsin? Uh, generally at this time of year, not much at all. Um, so the fact that, people keep talking about it, we're talking about it, has a lot to do with making the team name choices uh, something that really gets your attention for better or for worse. I feel like Supper Clubbers is my favorite among them because I don't know much of anything about Wisconsin, but I do know that they are real big on supper clubs. And just the whole supper club aesthetic seems like it'd be fun. Plus clubbers, you could kind of make that as a, as a baseball thing, a bat, kind of a club. I feel like I'm going with Supper Clubbers. Me too. I'm right there with you, Tyler. And I had kind of the same reasoning. If I just put on my fan hat, which I actually do. It's just a hat that says fan. That oh, I, I thought it was a hat with a big fan on it. Well, I have one of those too. But <laughs> that one professionally, the one with the actual fan I wear as a professional, but the one I wear as a fan that just says fan. Um, in that mode, I did pick um, Supper Clubbers. It's just the one that appealed to me most aesthetically. But you know what? Again, wearing my fan hat, I'm not wild about any of those in terms of like a team that sounds like a team I want to root for, but uh, I also understand, you know, <laughs> you know, why, uh, why this is all happening. And uh, I, I am really happy for Beloit to get a lease on life uh, regard, you know, regardless of this controversy um, to, to get a, a lease on life in 2021 and beyond as a minor league market. I think that's pretty special. 
And the ballpark looks gorgeous. I mean, it's the the renderings of it look amazing, and that is really cool to see a a market like that get something like that um, to inject some life into a, a franchise and community. And um, you know, I know talking with a, a couple of fans who lived near Kannapolis uh, for a story I did a few weeks ago, they said it really felt like the Cannonballers' new ballpark was going to do kind of the often mythologized downtown rejuvenation. It really seemed like that was on track to happen in Kannapolis. And I know communities like Beloit uh, really try to, to benefit from things like that as well. And uh, it's neat to see something like this progressing. And hopefully, obviously, we get to 2021 and we have uh, some normalcy and, uh, and fans in that area can get a chance to head out and catch some, uh, I don't know, polka pike games cheese some cheese ball games something i don't know um sky carp one of those uh let's move on ben's got a story up on the site uh as of yesterday we're recording this on wednesday but uh, went up on tuesday about longtime sacramento river cats radio voice uh johnny doskow who was uh like all of us forced into an entirely strange brave new world uh back in march when it became apparent that we were not going to have anything resembling a normal minor league season and then we ended up not having one at all uh johnny's been with that team for a long time didn't get a chance to broadcast any river cats games this year so he wrote in some published a book of poetry which is a really cool way to have spent some time early on in the pandemic uh tell us about this yeah uh johnny johnny d johnny doskow um been with the sacramento river cats for uh, almost two decades as a broadcaster and uh almost three decades as a broadcaster uh you know in minor league baseball going back to cedar rapids and uh the high desert mavericks and the fresno grizzlies um but I saw that he had this book out and I got in touch with him and he sent me a copy and I read it and um, it's called Goodnight M and it's a book of poetry and Goodnight M is uh, the M is short for Emily and that's the name of his daughter who was born on Christmas Day in 2005 so starting in 2006 uh, Johnny would sign off all his broadcasts at you know, night games with Goodnight M. So that's the title of the book uh, tribute to his daughter but it's a book of haiku um, you know three line poems five syllables seven syllables five syllables and, um, you know, there's some autobiography in there, uh, but most of it is about baseball, specifically AAA baseball, specifically, specifically AAA baseball in Sacramento. And I really enjoyed it. I think he, he kind of got a lot of the essence of minor league baseball, especially AAA baseball, uh, in this very concise form, and it was just something unique. And, you know, when I got the book and I read, I read it and, it, you know, it didn't take too long to read, given that it was uh, haikus and they're all pretty short, but there's about 200 haikus in the book. You know, when I was talking to him uh, after I read the book, I was like, well, how long have you been writing these haikus? Thinking that these haikus were called from, you know, years and years of writing haikus. But every haiku in this book, he started writing when the pandemic hit. He was just like, I can't call games. I'm just going to write haikus. And so he wrote like 500 of them and then edited down to about the 200 of them in this book. Um, so it all came together pretty quickly for him. And, uh, but I, I enjoy it. Um, you know, stories about getting called up, getting released, you know, 34 year old veterans. Uh, you know, there's also an element of the book that, you know, is a PCL Pacific Coast League travelogue, you know, talking about his favorite spots in Tacoma or El Paso, you know, for breakfast or what have you. Uh, so it's just a real slice of life of minor league baseball in haiku format. Uh, Good Night M by Johnny Doskow, and I'd, uh, I'd recommend it if you're into that kind of thing. If you're into uh, books of haiku written by AAA baseball broadcasters, then definitely get this one as well and add it to your collection. And Ben, before we let you go, you have another story coming out this week. We talked a little bit about this on the show last week in, in terms of the importance of the minor league playoffs and what they mean because they'd be happening around this time of year. 
you're doing one of these stories that I always love from you in which you just basically take a question that I know a lot of people have out there and you just answer it. And this one is which teams have the most championships uh, in each league? I know you're still putting together the story right now, but what are, what have you taken away from that? And uh, you know, what, what can people look? Yeah, well, this will be out uh, Thursday, the same day as the podcast. And um, you know, anytime you write a story like this, it's just becomes like, Oh boy. People are going to get mad at this or start nitpicking this element because whenever you try to make sense of something within minor league baseball, there's going to be a lot of ambiguity or how do you exactly quantify or define something. But this is just a league-by-league league look at the active teams that have won the most championships in each league, meaning a team that you know, exists currently, that played you know, as recently as 2019, um, you know, which team that is active in the league has won the most championships. But you know, for example, uh, you run into problems right away, like the International League, well, you can say, wow, Rochester's been around for a real long time and they've won 19 championships. But the first uh, 10 of those were before there was the Governor's Cup playoff series. So they didn't actually play in a postseason. They just, you know, kind of won the championship by default of having the best record. But is it winning a championship if you don't have playoffs, you know? So that kind of question, it'll keep me up at night. These are the things that are really important to me. Um, and I said, you know what? I think the Columbus Clippers have won the most uh, championships in the International League because they've won 11 all since the playoffs were established, the Governor's Cup in 1933. So, so on and so forth. So uh, it's gonna be a lot of sto uh, story like that, a lot of quick factoids and uh, a lot of things that I'll be getting emails and tweets about telling me uh, what I got wrong or didn't quite get right or what is open for debate. And hey, I love it, bring it on. There's always something to talk about. Benjamin Hill, you can find uh, at milb.com slash bensbiz and on Twitter at bensbiz as well. And we will, uh, I'm sure, have much more to talk about over the next couple of weeks, Ben. We'll, uh, we'll do it again next week. Yeah, there's always something to talk about. It's uncanny. I mean, just the more time that goes on, the more there is to talk about and so on and so forth until... Uh... The heat death of the universe. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, I would say joining us for the MILB.com writer segment this week, but it's not really joining because he's been here the whole time. Tyler Mon, everybody. Hey! In case you good haven't to, heard Good him. to be here. Yeah. He, he's been here in the first segment, um, and now he's back. But no, Tyler, you have this really fun story uh, this week on El Paso and their connection, not to the Chihuahua's name, although that's that's been going for a little while now, but to the Diablos and Diablos days, which is tied into minor league baseball's Copa de la Diversión initiative. And um, right now we're, we're in the midst of a celebration of Latin American culture, not only across baseball, but across, you know, hopefully the Western hemisphere and maybe even beyond. Um, but tell us about El Paso and their ties to the Diablos. Yeah, it is uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, so we are uh, honoring that on the site. And I got a, an assignment to do a story on. Um, it was uh, initially we were going to do a story on a little bit broader strokes than this, in kind of how some of the teams, especially in the Southwest, the Diablos being a perfect example, have long been. Uh, teams that honored their local communities and their Hispanic heritage through either names that were Spanish language names or other things with their identities or, uh, you know, promotions or um, different elements of the franchise. The Diablos were one. Uh, Tucson's former team was called the Toros for a long time. Uh, before they were a major league team, the San Diego Padres were a Pacific Coast League team. The Arizona Fall League, as I noted in, uh, in the story about the Diablos, they've had the Saguaros and the Javelinas for a long time. So, 
this is not something that is just unique to El Paso, but El Paso is the team that largely embodies it nowadays in minor league baseball. So as you know, El Paso now home to the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres in the Chihuahuas who play uh, at Southwest University Park, which is by all accounts, one of, if not the best facilities in minor league baseball. Uh, but prior to the Chihuahuas existence, which started in 2014, uh, for 30 years from 1974 to 2004, there was an affiliated Texas league club known as the El Paso Diablos. And uh, the Diablos were a, a beloved team in that region who by the, the end of their time were playing at an outdated facility and ended up moving to Springfield where they are now the Springfield Cardinals. Uh, but they had such a unique and special relationship with their fan base. And the Diablos, upon uh, their elimination from the affiliated minor leagues, actually turned into uh, an unaffiliated and independent league team, or at least the name did. The name was sold by the former owner of the Diablos, Jim Paul, to uh, an independent league franchise, which played in a couple of different leagues and was known as the El Paso Diablos, played the same ballpark, but uh, hosted obviously very different baseball, independent ball versus affiliated ball. Um, that team existed from 2005 to 2013 when they vacated El Paso to make room for what would become the El Paso Chihuahuas. And that's kind of where this story starts. I got a chance to talk with Brad Taylor, who is the, uh, the general manager and the, one of the senior vice presidents for uh, the Chihuahuas. And uh, Brad was hired in 2013 to lead into getting the franchise established and, and starting play in 2014. And pretty quickly, was able to glean from the community that it would be really cool and really important if the new team, the Chihuahuas, could reclaim that identity and that history from the Diablos name. So it's kind of interesting because that name being sold to an independent league team was then trademarked and unavailable for use by the new minor league team, the Chihuahuas. So Brad was essentially given the guidance from minor league baseball, well, wait three years. And if the, the marks are not used in three years, they'll expire. And he told me in the story that he basically put a reminder in his phone in 2013 to check again in 2016 and see if the trademarks had expired. And they had, and the Chihuahuas reclaimed the name and, and brought it back in some various incarnations. And, and one interesting thing about this, you mentioned in the story or you quote Brad is saying like it's 82 to 85% Hispanic and this is the borderlands. Um, so beyond just a name and, and all that, what, what is the connection to the Diablos? I mean, what, what is it about that that just makes it special? Is it just a connection to the past? Is it the, you know, Hispanic sounding name? What about it that is just so special to that region? Yeah. What I think is really cool. And Brad pointed this out a lot is how, many Chihuahuas fans will tell him or tell other front office members about how much they appreciate the Chihuahuas reviving the Diablos name. So the, the Chihuahuas play now every Wednesday home game as the Diablos. Those are now Diablos days. Uh, and Brad also pointed out in a, a part of the story that I didn't get to include that they've actually married the Diablos days with some of their other promotions, including one, in which senior citizens eat free at the ballpark uh, and get to come in and kind of have a day that is more geared toward them. And he said, the neatest thing about that is you'll get these people who come in and they're wearing giveaway Diablos hats from the eighties, or they've got a, you know, a jacket that was a giveaway item or something else that was part of a promotion at a Diablos game that they went to in the seventies or the eighties uh, or whenever it was. And he said, El Paso is such a cool and unique market because so many people have stayed there 
And they've kind of bridged that gap in time between when the Texas League Diablos left and the Pacific Coast League Chihuahuas arrived. There are still so many people in El Paso who grew up going to Diablos games. And so now they get a chance to sort of relive part of that or at least honor that part of their own histories. Um, And yeah, it is really neat. The fact that it is like he deemed it a borderlands uh, region of the country, El Paso in one of the further furthest most uh, western extremes in the state of texas and right on the border uh with juarez and with mexico um that community is one that obviously loves its baseball and uh is such a, a rich uh hispanic and latinx area in all facets and that kind of is evident in the copa identity that the Chihuahuas took on. So the the Chihuahuas uh, being the new name of the AAA franchise, they actually, prior to the inception of Copa de la Diversión, uh, which started officially in 2018, they were already doing Los Chihuahuas Days, uh, in which they honored the local Hispanic community and did some Spanish language uh, promotions and that type of stuff. Um, when Copa came around, minor league baseball actually went to them and said, hey, you can continue doing the, the Los Chihuahuas stuff if you want to. And Brad said, that doesn't really move the needle for us. Let's, let's try something different. So they came up with the El Paso Margaritas, which is what they play at uh, for their Copa identity, because as the story goes, the Margarita was invented in that region. So that is really a third distinct identity for the Chihuahuas to be able to, to label and name and merchandise and, uh, and profit from. And they've been able to do that, uh, which is so successful for a minor league franchise, even to just have one alternate identity that you can capitalize, but to have a throwback that's a different name and from a different time that has such a, a familiar emotional connection with your fan base. And then a new thing like a Copa identity, um, that's pretty incredible too. They really just are are such an innovative and unique organization, and they carry on a legacy from the Diablos who were also that way. And that was something Brad pointed out. He said, you know, this is really the first Copa community. We were Copa before there was a name for something like Copa, in which minor league baseball has uh, been trying to engage uh, that side of its fan base in a more direct way, the Hispanic side of uh, the Latin American community with the, the alternate identities and different promotions at the ballpark and Spanish language public address announcements and um, all those different types of things. The Diablos were doing that back in the 70s and in the 80s. Uh, and they were doing other things like the what we now know as the Innovator Summit was originally the El Paso Seminar. Uh, and then later the Promo Seminar, now it's known as the Innovator Summit. That was something that was pioneered in El Paso. Jim Paul, who was the owner, used to have a handful of teams come out and join him. And they would sort of spitball and have a retreat and talk about best practices and methods that had worked uh, across the landscape. And then the event got so big and so successful, he sold it to minor league baseball. So there's such a, a powerful foundation that the Diablos laid in El Paso that the Chihuahuas have been so mindful of recognizing and honoring. And I think that's really cool. And I'm speaking from a, an area in which there is a major league franchise that essentially has ceased to acknowledge that there was any baseball prior to its inception in the town where I live uh, in this town. And so it's neat to see franchises that not only – point out the the history of those who came before them and laid that groundwork but choose to honor it uh and it's really cool how el paso holds itself to a standard that it feels like would be acceptable to the people who came before them and ran that diablos franchise yeah and i'll kind of take this question to you that i always take to ben when something like this is so successful and it's you know do you feel like this is something that other minor league teams could reproduce because 
so much of this is a unique situation, right? In that, as we've said, El Paso being right on the border. Um, I know people who've gone to El Paso and, and said they've walked to yeah. Mexico just to say that they could. Um, and this community is so Hispanic based. You know, there are, there are so many people in that area, but there are Latinx people all around this country. Um, and the Latinx experience isn't just one thing. You can't just say, well, we named you know, our team this, that, that's a celebration of you all. There's a lot of people come, coming from a lot of different areas. Um, so this whole three-prong approach, apparently, uh, uh, you know, the Chihuahuas, the Margaritas, and the Diablos seems to work really well. Do you feel like this is something other clubs can do? Or is this just so perfect for El Paso, given their history to baseball and the Diablos identity specifically? You know, I think it might work best in El Paso in that way, but I think other communities can certainly do it and can certainly capitalize on it. It sort of surprises me that we don't see more uh, of a a throwback in a, an honorific type of thing across the minor leagues. And look, a lot of that is a, is a cost issue, right? I mean, getting throwback uniforms and putting the infrastructure in place to do stuff like that costs a decent amount of money. Uh, so teams are somewhat reluctant to do it because it can be prohibitive in that way. But so many teams play in areas that have such rich histories that it somewhat surprises me that we don't see more of it. Um, I think if you were to, you know, tab a, a PCL franchise and say, hey, what would your most successful alternate identity be here? Most of them would say a throwback of some kind. Um, and obviously El Paso and, you know, Tucson, a former PCL market, uh, they were very much in a, a distinct uh, region of the country where you could be nowadays, if you were to do it, you'd be looking at both a throwback, but something that also engages with your Hispanic fan base. That might not be the case for a team that's in a different area. Uh, somebody who's in the, in the Midwest or in the Northeast or somewhere. But I do find it uh, to be very fascinating when markets have this, um, this base of fans that are still so connected to what came before. And I think it's really cool when franchises not only recognize that, but embrace it and try to capitalize it and bring it back for people. I mean, it's, it's neat to hear those stories from somebody like Brad who says, yeah, I have people come up to me and say, you know, my, my father, my mother took me to games when I was a kid, we went to Diablo's games and now I get to take my kids or my grandkids that's a, a powerful thing. And it's one of those, you know, how can you not be romantic about baseball sorts of things, but that really is something that connects people and connects generations. And to have a, a logo or a uniform or a mark that evokes something, some type of emotional response in your fan base, because it puts them back in the, the time when they were nine years old and they were sitting in a ballpark with their family and watching teams in those uniforms do those exact things, maybe a, a different field, a different facility. Um, I think that's really, really cool. So El Paso might be kind of the, uh, the high mark for what a, uh, an effort like this can look like. But I think a lot of teams would really be very successful with it. Yeah, well, hopefully, um, you know, this is a, a roadmap a lot of teams can follow. And even if it's not quite as successful as El Paso, that's still such a high bar to set that I think a lot of teams yeah. could could take advantage of this. And um, hopefully we're talking about it more beyond just Hispanic, Hispanic Heritage Month, but we're going to be having a lot of more of our writers come on in the, in the coming weeks to, to celebrate this time of the year and, um, you know, the Latin America's roots in baseball uh, and baseball's roots in uh, Latin America as well. And there's so many stories to tell about this. Great way to start out with Tyler's discussion. 
hear about El Paso and the Diablo's identity. And uh, yeah, we'll be back here in a minute to wrap things up here on the show before the show. Fall is here and MILB has everything you need to get into gear for the cooler weather. Browse hoodies, pullovers, beanies, socks, and more from your favorite minor league teams. Visit MILBstore.com and use promo code FALL25 at checkout to get an additional 25% off select fall items now through September 20th. MILB Store, we have your fun in store. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show as we uh, get set to say farewell for this week uh we'll talk to you again next week but sam before we go has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact yeah so this week's prospect fun fact uh comes up to us from the defensive side of the game uh anybody who follows baseball savant or Statcast numbers uh might know that this week uh baseball savant re- released uh the infield outs above average numbers across baseball uh, outfielders were out there. They were a little bit difficult to find, but now infielders are up there as well. So we have the kind of full breadth of outs above average for anybody who doesn't know what OAA means. It's basically whenever you hear that, you know, there was a 20% catch probability on that play, uh, that number goes somewhere. So if a, if a player makes a catch on a 20% play, they get 0.8 credit for making the play. If they don't, then they lose negative 0.2. And you tally all that up and you get outs above average. Um, so the leader right now and outs above average for all major league players, infield or outfield, is Luis Robert at six. Uh, technically, Nolan Arenado also has six above outs above average. That's kind of telling you the defensive class that Luis Robert is in. Um, he's basically as good in center field as Nolan Arenado is at third base, which Tyler will very – uh, easily tell you is a very, very good thing. Um, but yeah, so Luis Robert already leading all major leaguers in this one stat. And there's a lot of defensive stats you could look at, defensive runs saved, uh, UZR, what have you. But this is a, this is a pretty straightforward one here. Um, tells you that Luis Robert's already elite with the glove in center. Uh, and that's a pretty big part of his rookie of the year case this year, because you look at Kyle Lewis, Kyle Lewis is a pretty good defender um, but not at all on the level of, uh, yeah, he's 78th. He only has one out above average. Um, so Robert definitely has the advantage there over a Kyle Lewis. When we're talking about overall production, we have to factor this in as well. The other interesting thing to me here that I'll just throw out here quick is number four in this category, again, across all positions, across all Major League Baseball, is Jake Cronenworth of the San Diego Padres. He played all around the infield essentially for San Diego this year, but he's basically been good anywhere he's played. He's got five outs above average. So when you look at who's leading the rookie of the year races right now, it's Robert and Cronenworth. And a big reason of that isn't just what they're doing at the plate, which has been really, really good. It's also what they're doing with the glove and being overall uh, producers for their clubs. And it's a big reason why the White Sox are are leading, uh, you know, the, the AL postseason race right now, they're in the number one spot. And the San Diego Padres, I think, have the second best record uh, in the National League. Yeah, behind only their division mates in, in the Dodgers. It's because these guys are doing it not only with mass, but also with the clubs. And with that, we will sign off for this week's episode of the show. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. 
It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. 